The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled, Has Immunotherapy Brought Us to an Inflection Point in the Multimodal Management of Stage 1 to 3 Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer? Dissecting the data and instituting multidisciplinary alliances to improve outcomes in early-stage disease. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HSD 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, and thank you for joining this PeerView webcast. Has immunotherapy brought us to an inflection point in the multimodal management of stage 1 to 3 non-small cell lung cancer? I'm Stephen Broderick. I'm an assistant professor of surgery at Johns Hopkins and the Johns Hopkins Kimmel Cancer Center in Baltimore, Maryland, and Washington, D.C., and I'm joined today by Dr. Heather Wakeley, who is the Chief of the Division of Medical Oncology at Stanford University. Dr. Wakeley serves as the Deputy Director and Interim Medical Director of the Stanford Cancer Center, and she's also the President of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer. It's my pleasure to have her join this webinar today. So what's the agenda for today? We'd like to discuss first the evolution of immunotherapy in non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, going through the transition from the metastatic to locally advanced and early stage curative intense settings. Then we'd really like to hone in on the immuno immunotherapy-induced inflection point in the multimodality management of patients with resectable stage 1 to 3 non-small cell lung cancer. That will be broken into several sections. First, a focus on neoadjuvant immunotherapy, uh, the rationale, surrogate endpoints, updates on recent data, and some illustrative cases followed by a focus on adjuvant immunotherapy. Again, the rationale, latest evidence, a new regulatory approval, and illustrative cases. We'll discuss how collaboration is key in the management of multimodality therapy and uh, the management of patients with locally advanced non-small cell, and then have a, a, uh, some time for audience and faculty Q&A. So let me stop here and introduce Dr. Wakeley, who will discuss the evolution of immunotherapy in non-small cell lung cancer. Great, thanks. Um, so I wanted to just give a little uh, background. Um, any of you, uh, most of you are gonna be surgeons, and so the use of immune therapy is something that the medical oncologists have gotten used to over the past close to a decade now. Um, and first of all, the first introduction was in the second line treatment of metastatic disease with a series of trials comparing single agent immune therapy to docetaxel where we saw some survival benefits, not a great amount of response, but it was very exciting. Many of these patients didn't have other options. And from there, of course, we moved into first-line treatment with a series of trials for patients with high pdl one expression of the tumors where we can give single-agent immune therapy um, and show superior outcomes in response and survival to chemotherapy, and then moved into the combinations of chemo plus immune therapy with even better results. And there, the PDL1 levels don't seem to matter as much as they do with the single agents. Also, with combinations now of double checkpoints, so uh, CTLA4 plus PDL1 combinations. Um, and now we're moving into earlier stages. So, first of all, with stage three, combination chemo and radiation therapy followed by Dervalimab. The Pacific trial completely changed the standard of care for locally advanced disease. And now the focus of today is how do we bring all of this great data from immune therapy and the exciting promise for patients and bring it into earlier stages where surgery is part of the treatment plan. 
Um, so that's where we're going to be having for most of the rest of their discussion today. And we'll be focusing in on the neoadjuvant Checkmate 816, the only randomized phase three trial that we have so far. And then also from the adjuvant trial, uh, we've got the Empower 010 where we have data and FDA approval, um, but lots of other studies coming down the road. So this perioperative space is indeed crowded. So I mentioned that we have a lot of other neoadjuvant studies. Uh, this is just a listing of some of them, the ANVIL, NCTN study, uh, BR31, and PEARLS. Uh, there are others. And then with neoadjuvant, many of which also include adjuvant, so they're sort of not pure neoadjuvant other than the Checkmate 816. And so we've got the Empower 030, um, the Keynote 671, the Aegean, and the uh, Checkmate 77T. Um, so with that, now I will turn it back to you. Terrific, thanks. So let's really dig in and focus on the, the neoadjuvant um, um, applications of immunotherapy and talk about the rationale, uh, the surrogate endpoints that we've used, uh, and some recent data and an illustrative case. And we always like to begin with a, a case to sort of focus everyone's attention on, on the problem that we're dealing with. And so this was a patient of, of mine who I, I met now a few years ago. He was a 56-year-old active male with a cough and weight loss uh, and was identified to have a 10 by 7 centimeter mass centrally located in the left lower lobe. Certainly a, a, some component of that was atelectatic lung, but also significant hilar adenopathy. An MRI of his brain was negative for metastatic disease. And here are some images from his PET, which again shows this large, heterogeneous, hypermetabolic, somewhat necrotic mass in the left lower lobe and that ipsilateral intense hilar nodal activity. There's no evidence of distant metastatic disease or other nodal metastatic disease on his PET. He was staged and, and, and also a diagnosis was obtained uh, via EBUS. Uh, on bronch, there was a central uh, component of endobronchial disease in the left lower lobe. Stations 4R, 7, and 4L uh, were biopsied and negative, um, but the station 11L lymph node showed a poorly differentiated non-small cell carcinoma, PDL1 of 20% with a KRAS G12C mutation. Uh, he was reasonably fit. He had an FEV1 of 3.7 liters, good diffusion capacity, and, uh, and a normal echocardiogram with, with a PA systolic of 27. Uh, and so we discussed a, a few different options for him, uh, including neoadjuvant chemoradiotherapy, uh, definitive chemoradiotherapy, uh, or resection followed by adjuvant therapy, uh, or what at the time was, was an early uh, clinical trial of neoadjuvant immunotherapy. Um, Heather, what would you have considered at Stanford for a patient like this? I think we would have had a really similar conversation um, obviously, with the clinical trial option, we always are more inclined in that direction, but clearly important to talk through it. Um, uh, I'm not a surgeon, uh, but we, this is a case we definitely would have had presented at our uh, multidisciplinary tumor board where we meet weekly um, to review the images. And, and I think that you know, we're certainly a surgically biased center, so if our surgeons felt, yeah, this looks like it could be resectable, we're going to head away from the just chemo radiation and more into... Um, looking at a potential surgical approach. We do think about neoadjuvant um, in a case like this or that that tumor was pretty big and looked like it could be a little bit more, more challenging. Um, so one of the neoadjuvant approaches most likely and, and hopefully the trial, but these all are, are reasonable and things we would have talked through. Great, thanks. That's, that's exactly the conversation we had. You know, we, 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 we really try not to perform pneumonectomies if we don't have to. And, and so we had a, a real central tumor here 
Um, and, and with node positive disease, we certainly thought that that some neoadjuvant therapy was going to be appropriate. Okay. So um, let's circle back to that later after we've discussed some of the data and, and uh, talk about what we did and the outcome. So what's the rationale for, for neoadjuvant immune checkpoint inhibition? Um, you know, we, we've heard about data in patients with higher disease burden and advanced, advanced stages of disease. And so we really do think that, that these agents may be effective in treating patients with lower burdens of, uh, lower disease burden and an attacked immune system. Biologically, it just makes sense that we're, we're, when we use these drugs, we're really asking the immune system to identify neoantigens neo in the tumor, uh, attack the tumor, and, and also uh, assist in long-term surveillance in, in the event of recurrence. And so uh, that T-cell response can be generated uh, perhaps more robustly uh, against uh, an in-situ primary tumor that has a diverse antigen load rather than, than, than giving the drugs in the adjuvant setting when we're trying to eradicate micrometastatic disease. Um, perhaps uh, agents are better tolerated upfront than in the adjuvant setting when patients are, are recovering from uh, what may have been a significant uh, um, uh, operation and, and hopefully no perioperative complications, but in the real world, those things do happen. And we know that in terms of, of chemotherapy, patients do better when they receive their chemotherapy up front rather than in the adjuvant setting and, and are better able to complete treatment. Uh, we have faster endpoints uh, to assess response in the uh, neoadjuvant setting. So if a patient is not responding or is clearly progressing, that allows for a change of therapy. Um, and it's such an amazing opportunity for translational studies uh, and, and for biologic and immunologic correlative studies. Um, having pre and post uh, treatment biopsies is, is just invaluable uh, from a scientific standpoint. Um, and that allows us to hopefully determine predictors of response and mechanisms of resistance, which can further uh, um, the field substantially. Uh, you know, we've been talking about this um, at, at, at surgical meetings for, for a few years now, and, and there have been a number of papers published. And, and so, um, there are a number of questions that come up over and over again. And, and so uh, this is a slide that, that Brendan Stiles put together uh, sort of based on this invited expert opinion that we wrote in the AATS, along with Boris Sepesi and, and Matt Bott, um, sort of addressing some of these questions. And, and, and one question is, which patients should we include? You know, the majority of our studies have, have looked at stage two and three patients um, going as early as 1B. You know, certainly I don't think any of us have qualms about including a 1B based on size, you know, a four centimeter pet avid primary tumor on neoadjuvant studies. Um, the part ground glass, part solid, potentially lipidic tumors, I think we have a, a few more questions about. Uh, those patients tend to do very, very well with surgery alone. And, and so um, some of us are concerned about you know, uh, delaying those resections or, or potentially risking any, any um, um, uh, immune side effects of, of neoadjuvant immunotherapy in patients who are, are resectable with early stage disease. And then certainly patients with nodal disease or big bulky locally advanced tumors. Um, do I have to? Uh, we think so. We think it makes sense. We think it's probably best for the patient um, for all the reasons mentioned on the prior slide. I think that the optimal duration and optimal combination is, is, remains to be determined. You know, we're all eager when we meet a patient with resectable lung cancer to get them in the operating room uh, and, and have that specimen in the pathology lab. Um, for the most part, these neoadjuvant protocols are, are not resulting in, in any real delays to resection. 
Um, it depends on what study you look at, what the specified operative uh, uh, time point was, but usually at about four to six weeks after we finish therapy. And the vast majority of patients make it to the operating room on time. Are the oncologists going to mess this up or what side effects should we anticipate? Um, you know, we do see all sorts of itises. Um, the big one that we are worried about is obviously pneumonitis. Uh, in the studies to date, we've seen very little and again, uh, uh, none that, that have led to patients not making it to the operating room. Um, but we have to be on the lookout for this. Ones that I've seen uh, are also the endocrinopathies. So we've had a few patients with, with clinically significant hypothyroidism in the perioperative period. Um, and, and both the, the medical oncology team, certainly when the patients are on therapy, but the surgical team, as we're getting ready to take these patients to the operating room and, and certainly during the, the perioperative period and their postoperative hospital stay, we have to be tuned into these things and, and be ready to manage them should they come up. Um, at, at Hopkins, we actually have a, a immunotherapy adverse really immunotherapy related adverse events response team. So anyone who's on one of these drugs, uh, if things just start to look funny in terms of endocrinopathies or pneumonitis or pericarditis, uh, we have a team that's on call to help manage those those in the perioperative period and beyond. How do we? Uh, uh, how should we assess clinical response? We'll talk about that a little bit. Can we tell if it's helping or hurting? Um, we, we hate to delay patients if a therapy is not working, um, and we, we can talk about that somewhat as this, this discussion goes on. What's the best surgical approach? This is, is something that came up after the initial studies that had higher rates of thoracotomies and conversions, and is fibrosis in the pulmonary hilum a concern? Really in the back of our head is how miserable is this case going to be? Uh, maybe it's better for the patient, but it makes the operation a heck of a lot harder for us. Um, that tends to not be the case. Uh, we have a lot of locally advanced central tumors. And personally, I find that, that these post-neoadjuvant IO resections are, are, are no more difficult than after chemoradiation. Um, they're not easy cases, um, but, but they're doable. They can be done with a minimally invasive approach in many instances. Um, and, and so I don't think that should be something that prevents us from putting patients on trial. And then finally, are the perioperative complications higher? You know, we live in a world of pub public reporting, and, and so we don't want to have longer hospital stays and more air leaks and, and those kinds of problems that will make our numbers look bad. Um, the long and short of it is, is that so far we haven't seen worse perioperative outcomes um, in the uh, uh, IO patients compared with patients receiving other forms of neoadjuvant therapy. This is the pathologic uh, response data from the, the first uh, neoadjuvant paper that was published. This was Patrick Ford's paper in the New England Journal. Uh, and what you can see here is, is a significant number of major pathologic responses. This was after only two doses of single-agent nivolumab with 45% major pathologic response. That's less than 10% viable tumor. Uh, the responses occurred in both pdl one positive and negative tumors. Uh, and, and what you note there on the, the, the bar with the yellow squares is that uh, pathologic response did not correlate with the radiologic response by RESIST criteria. And here's some slides demonstrating that. On the, the left-hand patient one, you see a large, bulky right lower lobe tumor that had a significant response radiographically and pathologically, and that was a pathologic complete response in the tumor. Unfortunately, the patient did have residual nodal disease, and so despite seeing that dramatic response in the primary tumor, the nodal disease was not eradicated. And then patient five on the right-hand side has, has this large apical lung, lung tumor uh, that, that looks like it even may have enlarged somewhat on therapy on that week four CT scan. 
the pretreatment tumor biopsy is on the bottom left there, and, and that patient had actually a major pathologic response with 90% tumor progression, uh, tumor regression, despite some evidence of progression radiographically, probably due to T-cell inf in, uh, infiltration in the primary tumor. The other thing that we discussed when we were, were uh, reviewing this initial um, um, experience was the surgical outcomes. And we found that, that while 50% of the patients did have some surgical adverse event, by and large, they were minor. There were no mortalities. Uh, th there was no real evidence of respiratory failure. Uh, the most common adverse event was atrial fibrillation. And again, we're dealing with large central tumors that had anatomic resections, two of them pneumonectomies. And so those patients did ha have some uh, frequency of atrial fibrillation. And then other minor perioperative events, including UTIs, there was one pulmonary embolism, uh, um, but we did not see a significant impact on the perioperative outcomes. This was another single agent uh, um, neoadjuvant trial with atezolizumab, the LCMC3 page, uh, trial. Again, 1B to 3A, patients received two cycles of atezolizumab. And we don't need to go uh, too in-depth into this study, but uh, again, th this sort of reinforced that, that the patients did well in the perioperative period with, without undue uh, perioperative adverse events with, again, uh, significant rates of major pathologic response and, and pathologic complete response. As Dr. Wakeley mentioned earlier, uh, after the uh, effectiveness of single agent or, um, immune therapy uh, in the advanced disease setting was so successful, we, we began to see uh, even better success with combined therapies, chemoimmunotherapy. And so the Nadim study was really the first one that brought that into the neoadjuvant setting. And, and boy, this, this really sort of was, was a ground-shaking uh, 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 presentation that was that brought forward how effective this combination therapy therapy can be. So patients received uh, nivolumab combined with paclitaxel and carboplatin for three cycles, and then were taken to the operating room with just dramatic pathologic responses. So 83% of the patients had a major pathologic response and 63% pathologic complete response. Uh, this was not a comparative study, but we have uh, seen now the uh, progression-free survival and overall survival in the intention-to-treat population from Nadim um, with really outstanding uh, results, uh, which, which certainly uh, uh, dwarf historical controls for this patient population. So that prompted, uh, again, another study. This was performed by Columbia uh, and the group uh, at uh, MGH, and this was neoadjuvant atezolizumab with chemotherapy, and again, we saw dramatic rates of math, uh, 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 pathologic responses um, with, with uh, several complete pathologic responses. Dr. Wakeley, maybe, maybe now's a, a good point to stop and, and, and discuss some of the endpoints. As I mentioned, we're talking about pathologic complete response and, and major pathologic response, and, and, and these are surrogates, right? We, we don't really have survival data. So one of the things that when, when we discuss this, uh, uh, these protocols with surgeons is they say, well, show me that it improves overall survival. And, and so what's the evidence that these are reasonable endpoints for us to be looking at? So I think, I mean, that's really a, a critical question is how do we balance the like wanting to have a true truth, which is how does this impact cure, cure and overall survival versus wanting a truth sooner, right? Um, and so, and I'm someone who's most of my work in the past has been in the adjuvant world where we're sort of waiting and waiting 
and waiting. Um, and then I, you know, get jealous of my colleagues who do knee adjuvant work and they're like, I'm going to get a poster for five years in a row at this big meeting and talk about it and then we'll get the results, right? But um, I, I think that there is data in the past from chemotherapy responses and not just in lung cancer where when you do get a significant pathological response, it portends a longer survival because you are annihilating more of the cancer. And I think in the setting of an immune response, if you can elicit a really robust immune response early, we would assume that those cells, you know, the immune cells that recognize the tumor would continue to persist beyond the time of surgery. So that's good, right? So I think there's rationale for it, but do we really know? Well, not necessarily. Uh, the survival curves from Nadim with longer term um, data look really encouraging compared to historical controls. But having done clinical trials for a long time, we've definitely been burnt with uh, even randomized phase two data that looks great when we get into phase three. Um, and with non-randomized data, absolutely, you can just have enrolled patients who are gonna do well already. So I think that, um, you know, I wouldn't have changed practice based on any of the data we had up until the randomized phase threes had come out, um, but it was certainly in encouraging um, and it made it really exciting to be able to offer the clinical trials to the patients. Um, I, I think it will be great once we have longer term follow-up if we can look back and say, yes, having a major pathological response or a complete pathological response does indicate that this patient is going to do well and is cured. Um, and therefore, maybe those are patients who don't need additional treatment. Um, you know, we're still in phase one, which is figuring out, can we add more to help people do better? But then the next phase is gonna be, what's the minimum we need to do to cure someone bringing in immune therapy? Uh, minimum meaning, can we avoid the chemo or not? Can we avoid the immune therapy, which does lead a lot of people with long-term side effects? Can we, don't, don't get mad at me, can we maybe avoid surgery in some patients, right? <laughs> um, can we instead do radiation or maybe not, right? So those are gonna be the questions of the future. We're still in the, for right now, just proving that yes, adding in immune therapy, these checkpoint inhibitors, we actually are making a bigger impact for more patients. We can talk about disease-free survival now for adjuvant. We can talk about pathological responses in neoadjuvant. And so we're really hoping that all means better survival. And then we can start having those walk-back questions and what do these other surrogates mean? That's great. Thanks so much for that. Um, those are a couple of the questions I was hoping to ask you later on. So we might circle back to some of that again. Uh, but wow, that, that's terrific. Um, so we, we, we've alluded to it a few times. We do have phase three data now. Um, and, and so these, there are a number of trials ongoing. Uh, they're listed on, on this slide. Uh, Checkmate 816 is the one that has completed accrual. Uh, and the um, sort of initial results were reported out at the AACR. Um, we also have Keynote um, 671 with pembrolizumab, Empower 030 with atezolizumab, uh, the Aegean study with dervalumab, uh, and CA 20977T, uh, again with nivolumab. I'd like to spend a little time discussing uh, the, the Checkmate 816, uh, which is the only one that we have data for so far. Um, this was a, a, a multi-center randomized control trial, global randomized control trial. Um, with uh, enrolling stage 1B to 3A, uh, operable non-small cell lung cancer. So patients were seen by a surgeon up front and determined to be resectable, 
ECOG uh, performance of zero to one. Um, and there were some requirements for primary lung tissue being available. Patients were uh, randomized to uh, nivolumab in combination with chemotherapy. Um, there was a, a nivolumab plus ipilimumab arm. Um, that arm uh, we stopped accruing to early on because of, of some toxicity uh, versus platinum double doublet chemotherapy. And the patients went on to the appropriate resection. Primary outcome measures were event-free survival uh, and path CR rates uh, with secondary outcome measures of overall survival MP and MPR. You can see here that uh, the patients were uh, uh, recruited globally, so uh, almost half the patients from Asia, uh, and, and then 25% or so from North America uh, and Europe, uh, both squamous and non-squamous, um, and uh, no requirement for PDL1. So there were there PDL1 negative and positive patients included. 83% uh, um, uh, of the patients in the Nevo chemo arm versus 75%. Uh, in the chemo alone arm made it to definitive surgery. Um, more patients in the Nevo chemo arm were able to have uh, what we called lung sparing surgery, so non-pneumonectomy surgery, either a lobectomy or a bilobe or a sleeve or an arterial sleeve, or in some way avoiding that pneumonectomy uh, additional uh, morbidity. Um, there were some delays to surgery. Um, if you look on the, the bottom of this uh, uh, chart here, in the Nevo chemo group, 21% um, uh, of the patients had, uh, did not make the predefined six-week time point and 18% in the chemotherapy group. But believe it or not, the majority of those were for an administrative reason um, in terms of, of being able to get on the OR schedule or scheduling around holidays or the surgeon's schedule or, or one problem or another, um, but very few related to toxicity. Um, it, what I think is important here, and some of these numbers were, were, were really surprising, but that, that this is a, a randomized comparative study. And, and so we're not comparing to historical controls. Um, some of the things that jumped out to me were the, for example, the, the, the rate of positive margins or the surprisingly low rate of R0 resections, 83% uh, uh, in the Nevo chemo arm, but you know, even worse in the chemo arm at, at 78%. Um, Here's sort of the meat of the study. Uh, the path CR rate with neoadjuvant Nevo plus chemo versus chemo alone, 24% versus 2% in the intention to treat um, uh, population. So a dramatic difference, a dramatic improvement in path CR um, with the addition of Nevo to chemotherapy. It's important to note also that that pathologic response was assessed centrally uh, by, by pathologists who were blinded to the trial arms. Uh, and then when we looked at... Um, Patients with nodal disease versus those without, uh, we, we saw a 30% uh, path CR rate in the patients with nodal disease, so patients who were YP, T0, N0, uh, and in those who had disease only in, in a primary tumor, 25.7%. Uh, uh, we did see a 20.4% uh, PCR rate in the exploratory Nevo plus IPI arm, uh, but that arm was, like I mentioned, uh, um, stopped early. Uh, in terms of subgroup analysis, the benefit was seen across stages, so uh, 1B through 3A, across histologies, and uh, PDL1 positive and negative groups, so all demonstrated an improvement in pathologic complete response. Um, the MPR rate in the intention to treat population, so again, this is less than 10% residual viable tumor, 37% in, in the chemo nevo arm versus 9% in the chemo alone arm. When you look at the pathologic uh, regression, so uh, I, I like these, these charts with the depth of pathologic regression. And so the, 
the, the larger the sort of colored in area uh, on these graphics, uh, the, the, the more pathologic response that there was. And you can see the, the higher rate of PAT PCR in the primary tumor, but also the, the median number of viable tumor cells was only 10% in the, the Nevo chemo arm. So if you look at the, the middle of that blue chart, uh, uh, over half the patients had, had 90% uh, uh, tumor regression uh, and 74% uh, viable tumor cells in the chemo arm. So only 26% regression in the chemo alone arm. PCR by baseline stage. Again, we saw this across stages, so 1B through 3A. Uh, the PCR uh, uh, improvement was observed, again, regardless of radiographic downstaging, just like in the uh, New England Journal paper. Uh, CTDNA clearance uh, was associated with pathologic response. So the patients that had CTA, uh, uh, we saw higher rates of, for the patients who had circulating tumor DNA identified preoperatively, we saw higher rates of clearance with Nevo chemo compared to um, chemo alone. And on the right-hand side, you can see that that was associated with the PCR rates. Surgical approach, uh, again, a, a number of patients here, or, or sort of a, a high percentage, uh, underwent thoracotomy. Uh, um, again, this was a, a global study, um, so maybe not necessarily uh, consistent with uh, what we would expect in North America for the percentage of patients undergoing minimally invasive resections. Um, but again, we're talking about a lot of patients with locally advanced disease uh, who underwent pretreatment. Um, we do think that these cases can be accomplished minimally invasively. And if you look here in the Nevo chemo group, even more patients underwent a minimally invasive resection in, in, with the addition of immunotherapy than compared to chemo alone. So uh, again, highlighting that this is a comparative trial and the, the addition of immunotherapy did not make the resections any more difficult or higher, require higher rates of conversion. Uh, type of surgery, the majority of patients had lobectomy. Again, fewer pneumonectomies in the chemo-nevo group compared to the chemo-alone group. And then surgical complications were reasonable. Uh, we, we actually saw very few differences um, between the chemo-nevo group and the chemo-alone group in terms of, of uh, um, um, surgery-related adverse events. So in summary, uh, the, the 816 study showed a statistically significant improvement in the primary endpoint, which was PCR, uh, and that benefit was consistent across stages, histologies, TMB, or pdl one expression levels. Uh, NPR was in, in improved, as, as were uh, other response rates. Uh, the study continues to mature. We're really looking forward to those survival endpoints, um, and, and believe me, we'll, we'll get those out just as soon as they're available. Uh, the, the manuscript for this paper, uh, initial portion of the study is, is under production now, and, and so hopefully that will be out soon with more details about the um, uh, pathologic responses and the uh, surgical outcomes. Uh, it looks like the addition of neoadjuvant nivolumab to chemo uh, did maintain a tolerable safety profile and didn't impede the feasibility of surgery. Uh, CTDNA clearance was more frequent with Nevo chemo versus chemo alone and is associated with PCR. So this is the first of the phase three studies. There are a number more to come, which are continuing to accrue, uh, and, and we're looking forward to those results as well. So in, in conclusion, putting this all together based with the, the early data and the 816 data, we think that surgical resection can be accomplished safe, safely. It can be done minimally invasively, um, but I think most importantly is that it's done safely and effectively. 
just as we've gotten better and better at performing minimally invasive operations, we're, we're better at performing open operations with smaller thoracotomies and muscle-sparing thoracotomies, and, and patients do well the vast majority of times with either approach. So surgeons should do the operation and the approach that they're most comfortable with. Uh, the, the, the hilar fibrosis uh, in clinically node-positive patients is real but is manageable. I don't think it's any different than after chemoradiotherapy. Um, technical, and challenge, technical challenges and complications are not significantly different, uh, and the NPR rates are, are likely in the 10 to 20% range or higher uh, with chemotherapy and uh, ICI uh, likely exceeding 50%. So surgeons are hopefully going to be willing partners uh, and, and work with our, our medical oncology uh, colleagues to, to really figure out what's gonna result in the best long-term outcomes for patients. Uh, um, and, and we can get over any of the hurdles in the perioperative period uh, because it, it looks like these drugs really do make a difference in, in uh, um, not only pathologic response, but hopefully in survival. So circling back to our case, this was the initial imaging uh, with this PET-AVID left lower lobe mass and, and the EBUS results that showed metastatic disease in the station 11 lymph node. Um, so he was a T3N1. Uh, we did opt to put him on a clinical trial, uh, and he received nivolumab and ipilimumab for the first cycle, followed by single-agent nivolumab uh, for two additional doses. Here you see the restaging uh, imaging with, with, with a, a, a remarkable response in that, that lower lobe tumor. Some uh, persistent FDG uptake centrally in the left hilum. Uh, and I did have to perform a, a pneumonectomy on him because of that central hilar disease. Uh, and so we underwent a left pneumonectomy, lymphadenectomy. I had to be intrapericardial to divide the inferior vein. Um, his postoperative course was, was not terrible, but not perfectly smooth. He had pericarditis, uh, for which he was on colchicine. And you can imagine with that intrapericardial dissection and pericarditis, he did have some supraventricular tachycardia uh, and was discharged on amiodarone. All of that resolved within a few months uh, postoperatively, a few weeks postoperatively. Uh, and he had a complete pathologic response, no evidence of, of any residual tumor. And now, almost four years later, he is alive and well without evidence of recurrence. That's where I'll stop. Dr. Wakely, what, what, what do you think? Any, any comments or, or, or thoughts about where we are in the neoadjuvant space before we move to talking about adjuvant therapy? Well, thanks for sharing your remarkable case. I and mean, it's always uh, wonderful to see that kind of a success story. And it's, it's great to review the Checkmate 816 data. Uh, you know, this was a really well-conducted, randomized phase three trial with definitive outcome showing higher rates of pathological complete response and major pathological response. We obviously don't have the really patient relevant outcomes, which is those survival data yet, but we, we will. Um, and I'm certainly encouraged as a non-surgeon by seeing these improved surgical outcomes that you really you weren't running the risk of reducing the opportunity for the patient to have that curative resection. Um, you know, one of the things that I've certainly looked at when you look at the data we do have with neoadjuvant studies so far is who are the patients who didn't get to surgery, right? Was there a fallout on being able to get to surgery? And in some of those earlier studies, it's maybe 10%. Now, maybe those are patients who, when you actually took them to the OR, if they just went straight away, wouldn't have been able to get that surgery. We don't really know, but that continues to be a question. And so it's going to be really important as we try to figure out, well, what's better, neoadjuvant, with adjuvant, neoadjuvant, alone, only, 
adjuvant is that we um, figure out a way to do those apples to apples comparisons. Um, right. right When we look at a neoadjuvant trial, it's patients who at the get-go were thought to maybe be surgically resectable. Um, and then they went ahead and got their a lot of treatment beforehand, some of whom then don't go on to surgery. I think 10% is probably a realistic number. When you look at the adjuvant trials, um, many of them only take patients after they've already completed their chemo. So you've already had the patients who didn't do well with surgery and didn't handle their chemotherapy excluded from the N. Um, the Empower O&O trial, which we'll talk about, enrolled patients after surgery, so you had to have done okay after surgery, but then we gave patients chemo on the study, and those who decided to opt out while they were in their chemo, they then weren't randomized, but it's encountered in the total number, and we did have some patients who said, forget it, I don't want any more treatment, and didn't get their immune therapy, right? So there'll be a different group than the other adjuvant trials. And so we have to be really careful when we try to figure out, well, what's best is that we always think about, well, who are the actual patients who went on, right? Um, now, we tried to do that with chemo alone, with the NATCH trial a really long time ago, um, where upfront patients were enrolled and randomized to get their neoadjuvant and then surgery or surgery and then adjuvant. So it was the same group of patients from the beginning, but we struggled right. to enroll to that and didn't get a really clear answer either. So I think that um, it's gonna remain a question, but at least so far, I mean, the Checkpoint 816 data certainly supports what we had seen in those earlier studies that giving immune therapy with chemotherapy were actually helping some patients far more than with chemo alone. So far, we don't have a great way of figuring out up front who those patients are. The PDL one helped a little bit in guiding that, but it wasn't there were still patients who benefited who didn't have that. The CTDNA data is encouraging, but it's sort of saying, well, if you respond, your CTDNA goes down, uh, you know, your tumor DNA, so obvious. But I think what we really want to figure out is, um, you know, I think the CTDNA is going to be even more important for adjuvant, right? So when I'm thinking about, well, how do we again get to that goal of curing as many people as possible with minimal treatment? There might be a group of patients who they get their surgery and then we find out that they don't need anything else, so they're done, right? And that would be really good CTDNA testing, which is being developed, but I don't think we're quite there yet commercially. And then with neoadjuvant, you know, how do we, maybe there's a group of patients where they do so well with their chemo IO or IO alone, they don't need the surgery, right? And again, we need better tools to be able to figure that out. Again, I realize I'm speaking to a group of surgeons, so uh, please invite me back another time. Don't kick me off for well, radical you're, ideas. You're, but You're obliterating all of my questions for later, though. <laughs> it's all right. We're just going to be talking through. But, but anyway, I'm really impressed with the A16 data. I do think that the results that we're seeing as far as what's a true path complete response rate, it's probably gonna be in that 20% range. What's a major pathological response rate, it's probably in that 40, 50% range. It's probably not quite as good as that blow me away data that we saw from the initial and the deem and others, right? So, um, so, but it looks great and I'm really looking forward to seeing those really patient relevant outcomes over time. Agree, I'm really looking forward to it, can't wait. Yeah, so should we move on to adjuvant? Tell us all about it. All right. Okay, so we'll talk about adjuvant immune therapy. Um, and this is a case here. 
So patient is 55 year old, Asian American man, had a heavy smoking history, showed up with hemoptysis, and um, he has a right upper lobe mass, confirmed, he's got a lymph node that's enlarged, PET is negative otherwise, brain MRI is negative. Um, he went straight to surgery, had a right upper lobectomy, uh, it was R0 resection, and testing showed his PDL1 was 70% in the tumor. None of the key driver mutations, so medical oncologists like to think about our driver mutations in adenocarcinoma, so EGFR, ALK, and ROS, and we have different adjuvant treatment if we find an EGFR mutation and studies for ALK, but those are negative. I did have a KRAS mutation, I think your case did also, those are pretty common. Um, one positive and one node, uh, and then he went straight to chemotherapy, got four cycles of adjuvant chemo, did really well, um, has some mild neuropathy from that. And um, we're gonna come back to this case at the end. Um, so when we think about what's the rationale for adjuvant, well, you get your patient to surgery right away, um, and then you can think about what else you might wanna do afterwards. Um, we know that for immune therapy, because it works so well in the metastatic setting we assume, and in um, post-chemo RADS, pretty logical it's gonna work in the adjuvant setting. Um, I have to say that as we, del we, we jumped into doing this adjuvant trial, there was a lot of buzz around, well, why don't you just give it only neoadjuvant? The tumor's still there. You're gonna get that immune response better. You talked about that too. Um, when, when you were reviewing uh, the neoadjuvant data. And so there were some concerns that maybe adjuvant wasn't the right way to go about it because most of the tumor was gone. Well, we'll see that's not true, it actually works. Um, but there were some fears around it, but that was a concern. Um, there is also the idea that if you can reduce your tumor burden to almost nothing with surgery, immune therapy is gonna be better able to wipe out whatever's left, just like we think adjuvant chemo is really effective then too. Um, surgery is gonna cause some inflammation anyway, so maybe that's gonna help your immune response. Um, we don't delay the surgery with adjuvant. Um, surgery after neoadjuvant chemo, I, again, from my surgical colleagues, I hear that can be more difficult. So the surgeon's done their big part, curative intent has been done with the surgery, and then you give the treatment afterwards, so no risk of complicating the surgery. Um, we know adjuvant chemotherapy is standard of care. Um, and we know that combining things can be better um, or sequential therapy. Um, we also have this ability to do maintenance for an extended time. If you only give neoadjuvant, you're not gonna postpone that surgery forever. After you've taken the tumor out, you can keep going for a while. Um, and we're hoping that chemo is gonna augment that immune response. Okay, so these are our adjuvant immune therapy trials. We've only seen results on one. And with an adjuvant trial, you don't get to keep peeking to see how things are going. You gotta wait till the end, right? So we have our tezolizumab data with the Empower O&O, and we're expecting readout with the nivolumab data, which was the big um, National Cancer Trials Network, NCTN study, the Anvil study. We also had Duralumab, which is global, and then the Pembrolizumab study, which is also global. So um, just like we're looking at all these drugs in neoadjuvant, we're also looking at them in pure adjuvant. And I think it's important to talk about the fact that the Checkmate 816 is gonna be our only pure neoadjuvant study, right? Because that trial only looked at chemo plus or minus nevo and then surgery and nothing after. The adjuvant trials are all pure and that there's nothing before and then there's only after. 
but then most of our ongoing neoadjuvant trials are both neoadjuvant and adjuvants. So it, I think we'll have to really think through all of that when we're done, right? So, but this is the Empower 010 study. Uh, again, we, we took patients stage 1B, at least four centimeters in size, and then stage 2 and 3A, and most patients were stage 2 and 3A. Um, they had had to have gone through their surgery, they had to have tumor afterwards, which they did. Then they got their chemo, and then they were randomized, but they were on study during the time of their chemo. So we kind of knew what happened as far as the dropout rates with chemo, and then randomized one-to-one, -one. and you'll see that we did have close to 300 patients who during the chemo decided, eh, I don't really want to continue with this. And a lot of it was just the toxicity, difficulties recovering. And at the time, we didn't know if the immune therapy was going to be helpful or not. So there was less of an incentive for patients who were having a rougher time recovering to proceed. All right. So then they got their year of atezolizumab, standard dosing every three weeks, or best supportive care and followed up. Um, the primary endpoints, there's actually a, a hierarchical testing. And um, that's something that's been done with a lot of the atezolizumab studies. Not everybody designs their trials that way. It leads to some controversy, um, but it also helps you kind of stratify. So the first step was to look at patients who had PDL1 expression on their tumors, which was the majority, we'll get to on the next slide, and had stage two to three A disease. And if that met its endpoint, then we went to all comers, regardless of PDL1 expression with stage 2 to 3A. Then the next one was all comers bringing in the 1Bs. And then the final was to look at overall survival. So you put a little risk in uh, from a statistical standpoint, but you're sort of focusing on what do we think is most likely to be positive. So when we look at the patients who were enrolled, um, the majority had non-squamous histology, so two-thirds adeno or non-squamous and one, about one-third squamous. Um, 1B was only 12% of all patients. Uh, the majority were stage 2, um, but about 40% stage 3A, so still a high percentage of 3A patients. And again, these are patients who went straight to surgery. Um, PDL1 expression was present in 54.6% of all uh, tumor specimens. And this is with the SP263 assay. Uh, there are a lot of different ways of looking at PDL1. The SP263, just like the 22C3, they're focused on just what's happening in the tumor. And that's really been what we standardly use in metastatic disease is the tumor specific assays. There, was, there are others that also look at the immune cells, and that was one that was initially thought about, the SP142, for this trial. But because in metastatic, all of the other PDL1 testing was around tumor only, and they was all correlated with each other, and this was the outlier, before any analysis of the trial, the switch was made to look at that SP263. Um, we also looked at EGFR and ELK. Um, they were not excluded from the from the trial, so patients with tumors with PDL1, um, PDL1 obviously we had to look at, but EGFR and ALK were looked at for the patients with adenohistology or non-squamous histology, and so there were some patients, um, and this is important because they're often excluded from other immune therapy trials. So we had about 11% of patients had EGFR um, and smaller with ALK. Okay. So then some more surgical, well, how did the surgeries go for these patients? Um, so lymph node dissections done um, in all patients, dissection in 80% almost, um, sampling in a smaller percentage. 
Um, regional lymph node status, again, followed the staging that we already talked about. Uh, three quarters of patients had lobectomy who were enrolled on the trials, so only 15% with pneumonectomy. Uh, again, kind of reflecting what we see and who was uh, who was enrolling and operating on these patients. And then we used different chemo drugs. Um, I won't go into that for this audience. Uh, we don't think there was a real difference there, but it reflects what is done in real world practice. A lot of use of the platinum pemetrexid for non-squamous patients. Okay, so this is the real data. This is the outcome. So remember, the first outcome was to look at patients who had pd one expression majority of patients, 55%. Stage two to three A, again, majority of uh, patients on trial at stage two to three A. And here that hazard ratio for disease-free survival was 0.66, highly statistically significant. This is the population where we have the FDA approval. So stage two to three A with pd one expression, and that's based on this disease-free survival curve. When we open up and include all stage two to three A, regardless of pd one expression, we still reach that statistical significance, but it's the hazard ratio is now 0.79. And then when we went into all comers, adding in the 1Bs, we haven't had enough events yet to call it one way or the other, just because it takes longer and there are fewer events, right, when you add in the stage one patients. So we're still waiting on that. Um, we shall see. Um, we also, of course, looked at this by a lot of different subset analyses. The ones that stood out as maybe not as beneficial were people who were still actively smoking. Trying to figure that out, we don't have an answer. Usually patients who are actively smoking seem to have more benefit with immune therapy in um, the metastatic setting. Um, we also saw though that patients with specific driver mutations, especially ALK, this is relevant because patients whose tumors have ALK translocations very frequently have high pd one expression but they don't respond to immune therapy in the metastatic world. And so it's really important that when we see patients who have high PD-L1, we also make sure they do not have ALK translocations or ROS. And so that's a really key message is that you can't just look at PD-L1, you also have to look at these driver mutations because if you find EGFR, they're probably better off getting EGFR targeted therapy that's approved. If they have ALK, even though they have high PD-L1, they shouldn't get this therapy. With the other drivers, it's more complex and we're trying to understand all of that and we'll get more data with more testing. Uh, but those are sort of the things that we talk about here. When we look at the stage, the, sta the more advanced stage, stage threes tended to have more benefit with the immune therapy. Um, and you see that also with which, which nodes were involved. Okay, now when we look at the pdl one levels, that does matter. Higher pdl one expression, assuming no ALK, better benefit. In fact, if you look at a patient, the patient group that had PDL1 expression of at least 50%, um, and that was over 200 patients, that hazard ratio was 0.43. That's phenomenally great. And so for highest PDL1 expression, really good benefit. No PDL1 expression, no benefit, not on label. Um, for the 1 to 49%, that's where there's a lot of debate. Um, and there was some data at ESMO this year looking at that, where we think there is benefit, but it's it's not as clearly there, and it's again, it wasn't a pre-planned subset, so we have to be a little careful as to how we interpret that. We can also look here for patients who have never smoked and who get lung cancer. Maybe this isn't really helping them either, and that gets to that whole: what does it mean to have a PDL and expressing tumor? What does it mean to have a driver mutation? How do we parse out these subsets better? 
Um, this is looking, uh, again, at some of the different chemo regimens and other things. We're not making too much out of these different chemo regimens right now. This trial, again, was not combination. It was sequential. You get your chemo, and then you get your tezolizumab. Um, and the later, newer trials will be looking at the combinations, which might be more helpful. This is more on the PD-L1 expression. Again, no PD-L1 expression, no benefit. High PD-L1 expression, lots of benefit. Medium PD-L1 expression, medium benefit, and that's where we need to do some more slicing and dicing of data to understand it. And that's also maybe where neoadjuvant's gonna play a bigger role. The Checkmate 816, the patients who had pd one expression seemed to have more benefit, but even those without any pd one on the tumors still benefited when you're giving it before surgery and in combination with chemo. We know from the metastatic setting that patients whose tumors have high pd one expression often do well with immune therapy alone. Those with lower levels on the tumor, the combination with chemo looks more beneficial. So maybe it's the chemo versus alone that's mattering here. Maybe it's neoadjuvant versus adjuvant. These are some of our remaining big questions. This is a survival data, survival data so far. It's uh, pretty early, we don't know yet. May, I, I like to think the curves are starting to separate for the patients with the pd one expression on their tumors, but we really don't know and won't for some time. All right, and then safety, gotta talk about safety. Uh, we, these are all patients who had had surgery. They all had chemotherapy. Rates of adverse events were high, um, but nothing unexpected. The ones that we saw were the immune-related adverse events. Any organ system can be impacted. Nothing that really stood out as being particularly worrisome other than we obviously don't wanna put patients at risk of immune-related adverse events unless we know we're gonna help them. And so trying to tease out who's really benefiting is ongoing. Again, this is more data. Um, this can impact every organ system. You'd mentioned um, the endocrinopathies, by far the most common, rash, some pneumonitis, but relatively rare, some hepatitis, relatively rare. Whether you give an immune checkpoint inhibitor before surgery or after surgery or in metastatic or after chemoradiation, all of these things happen. The rates seem to be fairly similar. Okay, so this was the first randomized phase three adjuvant trial with immune checkpoint inhibitor. It was positive, especially in patients with pd and expression on their tumors and in stage two to three A, though we don't have all the 1B data back yet. And that led to FDA approval. So uh, just a couple weeks ago, uh, atezolizumab was approved for patients who had undergone complete resection, had stage two to three A disease, and had pd one expression of at least 1% in their tumor. And that's the PDL1 testing is with the SP263, but the 22C3, other any of those others seem to be really similar based on the blueprint analysis by IASLC and some others. So back to our case. Again, this is a 55-year-old man. Um, he had a single positive node, R0 resection, um, PDL1 expression 70%, and the KRAS mutation had his four cycles of chemo. And the question is, would you give him a Tezo uh, now? I would, um, so uh, he was on a trial at the time and had a little bit of eosinophilia and some fatigue, so we think he was probably getting treatment, um, and uh, we're still observing him at this time, so that's the case, and so turn it back to you. So as a surgeon, when you're thinking about neoadjuvant versus adjuvant, 
what's going through your mind and tumor board as you're discussing that? Yeah, you know, I, 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 I love the neoadjuvant approach. Boy, this data is impressive, though. Um, and, and for me, it's just so great to have a way to work these drugs in for patients in the adjuvant setting. You know, um, I, I, I distinctly remember conversations where we, we've looked at patients with, um, you know, low burden of disease um, that we've resected, um, surprise, N2 nodal disease, despite our best efforts. And then we say, well, they have to go get platinum-based chemo. And, and, and geez, can't we give them immunotherapy? And, and the answer was always really no. Like we, we didn't have data to support it and we didn't have FDA approval. And so they either had to go on trial. And if, we, if they didn't go on trial, they didn't get it. They got, you know, best supportive care. So um, I do wonder sometimes if we're looking at, at somewhat different patient populations, you know, the 3A is such a broad group of patients, whether, whether they have single station or multi-station, bulky or microscopic disease. And so, um, you know, I still think that when we identify 3A up front, I, I favor the neoadjuvant setting um, for the reasons we discussed. Um, I think that the study really highlights for me how important it is for surgeons to do surgical staging in the operating room, you know, and, and, and it, it's so frustrating uh, at some of our meetings to still see the rates of, of surgical resection specimens with no lymph nodes or uh, one or two here or there. You know, we, we, we have standards for this. And, and now, you know, if we're identifying micrometastatic disease, not only would we offer chemo with real but, but not so great survival advantages in the adjuvant setting, you know, 5 to 10%, I guess, depending on what you read. But, but boy, if we now have sampled the nodes appropriately, done a nodal dissection, identified stage three disease and it's pdl1 positive we really have something to offer those patients that that's mm -hmm. going to make a difference uh, and so it, that's really encouraging for me but highlights that we got to do our jobs um and, and you know those of us that are doing it great keep doing it but man we got to get the word out there how important it is for, for all of us um do you know the extent to which these patients had single station or multi-station disease and, and bulky disease versus non-bulky? It's so hard to keep track in, in that level of detail in, in these bigger multi-center trials. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I want to get back first to one thing you said. So remember, all these patients did have the chemo. So we don't want to yet leap to, oh, we'll just give immune therapy and right. not the chemo, right? So I want to just emphasize that. So we haven't ruled out the chemo. It's still part of that equation and important. Um, as far as bulky or not bulky, we don't know, right? Because these are patients who this, the decision to take them to the OR was made. They all had to have had an R0 resection. And there were some minimum standards um, as far as uh, how many nodes were, were sampled. Um, I we do have the breakdown of N0, N1, N2, and I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but they're in the slides. Um, and we did, we did definitely clearly show that the more disease burden you had, the more you were likely to benefit from the immune therapy, assuming that you had the pd one expression in the tumor. So that part's been clearly, and I think that more reflects who's at highest risk of recurrence and therefore who needs that extra treatment and who's gonna benefit from it from that perspective. I and mean, that's the simple way of thinking about it, right? So um, as far as that decision, I, I'm really, it was really interesting to hear your, your thought process on that. I think that 
I, I share that. When we discuss our stage 3A patients and our tumor board, we do often point towards a neoadjuvant chemotherapy approach. Um, we've had the trial open, so of course we've been emphasizing them going on trial for chemo plus or minus IO. Um, now that Chickmate 816 is out and neoadjuvant trials are closing, you know, that's something we don't have the authorization yet, but we you know, think about it, talk about it. Um, but for the patients who don't have a driver mutation and do have high pd one expression, now that we, we have the approval, I think even if we choose a neoadjuvant approach that involves just chemo, we're going to be coming in with adjuvant immune therapy. Once we have both approved, that's where there's going to be that really heated discussion. And I think we are still going to have patients, I think, the stage twos, where the surgeons are going to say, you know what, I can just get that out. Let me just get that out. And then you can come in with your additional therapy afterwards. But for the three A's, it's going to be that back and forth and back and forth. And then, you know, we still have the chemo radiation plus or minus, you know, with additional immune therapy, which is looking very good for some also, right? And that was one of the options you had for your case that you brought up at the beginning. So I think those tumor boards are going to get even more heated than they had been in the past. So I agree. I agree. There's going to be some really interesting discussions. So I think as we talk about those, those tumor boards and the discussion, it's really about collaboration, right? So the collaboration is key and making sure that the surgeons and the medical oncologists and our radiation oncology colleagues too are all working together so we can take this data and translate it into the best possible treatment options for each of our patients. Um, and I think it's, it's this kind of a forum where you can see oncologists and surgeons talking together um, and, and really making, finding ways that we can also reach out to the community practices. Obviously, you and I are both at big academic centers, so I, I see the surgeons I work with more often than a lot of my medical oncology colleagues. But if you're out in the community, you know, there's going to be different practices, and it's just going to be important that we have ways to disseminate this information and get people thinking about it and doing the testing up front so they know about the molecular status and they know about the PDL1 to make the best informed decision for the patient um, up front, right? Um, so that's going to be one of the other things to really be be thinking about. Couldn't agree more. That 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 multidisciplinary collaboration is is huge, and also uh, bringing the patients into it, you know, and, and and talking to them about their goals and their priorities. And, and um, some patients are super informed, you know, and, and say, "I want to go on trial." I recently had a patient who who wouldn't go on a trial that had a placebo arm. Uh, you know, wanted immunotherapy in the neoadjuvant setting, um, and, and then others who are, are, are less informed that, that we need to, to help bring along and, and help them make informed decisions about their own care and, and, and how it relates to their priorities and, and, and all the things that go involved, uh, go around going on study or getting neoadjuvant yeah. therapy or, or what's going to work for them and, and their lives. Great. I thank you for bringing that up. I mean, that is absolutely, it's sort of, it's the knowledge we have, how we share what with the patient to then have that shared decision-making as to what's the best approach for each person. So we got some great questions from the audience and I'll take one that's uh, related to patients who have an EGFR mutation in their tumor. And, and that does get complicated. Um, it, it's going to depend. So if a patient goes to surgeries, resected disease, uh, stage two to three A, uh, with an EGFR mutation and also has pd one expression, it's going to be a discussion. Uh, I would still recommend chemotherapy. Then the decision is going to be about uh, adjuvant osimertinib versus adjuvant immune therapy. At this time, I would probably lean towards the adjuvant um, osimertinib 
The disease-free survival hazard ratios from the ADORA trial are quite impressive. Um, the disease-free survival hazard ratios from uh, Empower 010 with atezolizumab for patients with EGFR mutation and PDL1 do look positive, but we really need to look at that further and understand it. So at this point, I would still think about the osimertinib as my first choice, but there might be a subset of patients where adjuvant immune therapy is the right decision, even if they have an EGFR mutation, but we don't have enough data yet. Uh, I will say that it is important to do that molecular testing, and if the patient has an ALK translocation, or some of the others where we really know that IO does never, does, just doesn't play a role, even though there's high PDL1, then it's important that we know about that and don't offer those patients adjuvant immune therapy. So EGFR, osimertinib is still what I would think would be the preferred option for most patients, but we'll need to explore further the role of potential immune therapy. So Dr. Broderick, were there, uh, was there a question you wanted to address? Sure, thanks. So one of the questions that, that was asked is, is immunotherapy uh, better used prior to surgical resection or uh, potentially in place of surgical resection? And, and you know, I, I think that's a, that's a terrific question. And as, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, we have a long way to go to sort all of the nuances out here uh, in terms of, of which therapy or combination of therapies is going to be best for a particular patient. I think what I would say in response to that question, um, and, and I don't know exactly where the person who asked the question is coming from, is that um, you know we don't know the answer yet, but certainly many of the patients still have residual disease after immunotherapy, uh, as we saw in the single-agent NEVO study or the single-agent ATEZO study, um, or after combination, uh, even in 816. While, while we're really excited about those outcomes in, in terms of MPR and PCR, um, still, many patients have residual disease after chemo IO. Um, we've certainly seen great results uh, in the Pacific trial, and that data is encouraging with chemo radiation followed by immunotherapy. Um, I think it's really hard to compare those patient populations uh, where we're looking at earlier stage locally advanced resectable disease versus the unresectable population that's in the Pacific trial. And it, it's tempting to do it. Um, but I think we really uh, need to be disciplined and, and compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges as we try to figure out what the best, um, um, what the best regimen is going to be for an individual patient. Um, I've personally had, had one patient who had a dramatic response to chemo IO. Um, I think on one of the earlier uh, uh, peer view um, uh, webinars, uh, Boris Sepesi uh, discussed a patient of his who, who had a, a bulky central right upper lobe tumor. Uh, and had com near complete resolution radiographically. The FDG uptake went to virtually zero, and and he was scratching his head, wondering, do I do I really need to do this operation or not? Um, and and uh, ultimately, uh, we we have these patients on study, and, and we agree, and we go go ahead. And and sometimes they have residual disease, uh, and we feel like we did a lot of benefit with the operation. Uh, sometimes they have a path CR, and and. I don't think we know what that means. Um, certainly, um, you know, there are patients uh, in lung cancer uh, and in other diseases where we see a PATH-CR and the patient recurs two or three years later. And, and so uh, I don't think that uh, currently, based on radiographic data, CT, PET, um, maybe we get there with CT DNA, we can uh, uh, omit surgery at this point and, and feel good about it. Um, 
you know, I, I think that, that we just have too many patients that have residual disease uh, and we don't quite know what a PATH-CR means yet. So and I try to think about how to put all this together. To me, it's just, it's just so much amazing, fabulous data and new opportunities for our patients. Um, and I'll emphasize that, that testing, we've got to know everything we can about those tumors going into it to make the, help the patients make the best decisions for themselves. There's a lot happening with ctDNA. I think that we're going to be learning even more. Um, but for now, we've got great data with neoadjuvant, chemo, and IO. And I think that's going to translate into survival outcomes. We've got great data with adjuvant single agent immune therapy with teslizumab. And I think we've got great outcomes coming from that. We've got like eight more trials that we're going to be hearing about in the near future. And we're going to have to make sense of all of that. But it's just an increasing, amazing time for, for our patients and what we're able to do for them. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. This activity is accredited by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HSD 860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb, Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, and Merck & Company Incorporated.